The Belly of the Beast with Brendan McCauley, a Go Loud original. It was midnight on April the 7th. It was an ordinary and quiet evening in Dublin. A mild, calm and otherwise unassuming spring night. But behind closed doors, away from the calm, the most daring act of espionage in Irish history was taking place. He began providing information specifically to Michael Collins. You're only one slight mistake away from execution. I'm Brendan McCauley. This podcast series tells the story of Ned Roy, one of Michael Collins's closest associates, one of Ireland's patriots, one of the most important spies in Irish history, the man inside the belly of the beast. There was a time in Ireland where nobody could be trusted. Your neighbour, your friend, your brother, none of whom you could ever be fully certain of their intentions. Those who laughed with, ate with and worked with may have been planning your demise. Some had intentions of freedom, to be free from serfdom, free of the crown and free to die on their feet rather than live on their knees. For all of these intentions there were risks. Risks of various levels. The risk of exclusion from society, the risk of imprisonment, the risk of death. Some who accepted these risks picked up rifles. Some picked up the pen. Some wore two masks. One mask which promised unquestionable loyalty to the master and the other which promised the same loyalty to the liberator. This is the story of the man with two masks. The athlete, the typist, the policeman, the nationalist, the man of honour for the crown and the spy in the belly of the beast. My name is Brendan McCauley and for 28 years I was a history teacher in Turnier College. My love of history came as a result of a fascination with great leaders whose life's work is to effect real change. And for this reason, I decided to pursue a career in it. One of the things I would often tell my students is when they go anywhere of historical significance is to place your hands on the walls and the scars of history and really feel the history. In doing this, they might get a sense of who was here before. What stories could the walls tell if they could speak? What secrets are they hiding? In 1996, myself and my wife bought our home, the one we live in today, and where we raised our family. As part of my teaching fourth-year students to try and keep them engaged in class during their transition year, I decided to seek out the deeds of my home in order to show them how living history works through primary source materials. When I did, I discovered that this house was built in 1924. I read on to discover that in 1934 my home was sold and that the vendor was Edward Broy, the then Commissioner of Angarda Shikana. It was then that I realised the owner of this house 
my home, where my children played and learned, was once owned by one of the most important figures in Irish history. I really wish the walls of this old house could talk so I could hear the voice of its first owner echo. What a tale these walls could tell. A man inherently linked to the Irish struggle for independence in the early 20th century. Always under the radar and operating in clear sight as a double agent, living on a knife edge. A man who was so devoted to the cause and to his professionalism that he never sought fame for his role in the freedoms that we enjoy today. A story only written down out of duty to historical records, but never for personal gain. A man who took his secrets to the grave with him. In this podcast series, we're going to bring a voice back from the shadows of Irish history. We're going to try and understand how did that young man, Edward Broy, or Ned Broy, as he was better known, not just be a gifted athlete raised in rural Kildare, but also a police officer who witnessed the 1916 rising from a police barracks and then set off on a journey to become one of Ireland's most important spies. He was not only a detective sergeant for the Crown Forces in Ireland, but also a counter-agent for the Irish Republican Army. A close friend and confidant of the big fella, Michael Collins. And for all this, from his desk, in a Dublin police station, in the belly of the British Imperial Beast. Broy, a young Irish nationalist, had been a witness to the failed 1916 Easter Rising. Now, appalled at the vicious and apparently retaliatory executions carried out by the British, he had decisions to make. His recent promotion sees him in the infamous G Division of the Dublin Metropolitan Police. The armed detective branch, which was an anti-subversive force engaged in foiling all nationalist activities. This puts him in a pivotal role and was to provide him with an enormous conflict. Was he to support the status quo, keep his head down and ignore the seismic changes that seemed to be in the air? Or would he become a spy for the forces that were struggling to achieve Irish independence? He chose the latter. And this season becoming a close friend and advisor to Michael Collins, the most notorious and most wanted man in the British Empire. As I approach my hall door and put my key in the old Yale lock and hear the familiar sound of the brass door knocker rattle every time, I know that I'm home. Home. Home to my family and that sanctuary away from the cares of the day. Walking through the hallway across the burnished brown parquet floor and down the two steps with their shiny brass edges, I come into what we call the family room. This was originally the kitchen when the house was built a century ago and it is the warmest room in the house. 
It is here that I feel really at home, as the calm and peace embrace me. With the fire crackling and a hot cup of tea in my hand, I often think of the first owner of this house, Ned Broy. Does he feel this sense of home, of safety, of shelter, away from the maelstrom of his extraordinary life? I feel very strongly that must have put a huge premium on such things. His was an extraordinary life. In 1915, as a detective with the Dublin Metropolitan Police G Division, he and his colleagues were tasked with gathering information on those Irish men and women who were attempting to end British rule in Ireland. The G Division, or the G-Men, knew it all. They knew the volunteers who were active as subversives against the Crown. They knew where they lived. They knew who supported them with food and accommodation. They knew where their guns were hidden. Ned Broy, in the middle of this maelstrom of espionage in 1917, made the bravest of decisions to become a double agent, assisting the Irish independence struggle by providing intelligence and advocating particular approaches to counterintelligence. Imagine deciding to become a spy for the Irish cause and to do this act of spying in clear sight from a desk in a police station at the heart of the belly of the British beast. I asked Professor of Modern Irish History in UCD, Dermot Ferreter, to give a sense of the dangerous nature of Broy's spying activities for the Irish volunteers. I suspect somebody like Ned Broy had to try and train his mind to be disciplined. Don't allow your mind to wander where you don't want it to wander, partly because you're aware of the scale of the betrayal uh, that you're involved in when it comes to your employment position, when it comes to your superiors, when it comes to those who are paying your wages. At the same time, he's clearly deeply committed to the Sinn Féin project, to the Republican movement. He may have deeply felt that he was doing what he needed to do as a patriot. And yet, you couldn't stop your mind racing, surely, about the consequences of the information that you were passing over, because ultimately it could result in death for particular individuals. So I'd imagine that there was a degree of compartmentalization going on in Ned Broy's mind. But I also imagine that it would have been impossible to keep all of those compartments going at the same time or uh, to keep those walls up between the different sections of one's mind uh, all of the time. And there would have been much fear because you're only one slight mistake away from execution. If the walls of this old house could talk, would they tell of the tenacity, bravery, courage and passion of Ned Broy? What stories have they heard? Certainly there must be echoes here of that infamous night in April 1919 when Broy smuggled Michael Collins into the British intelligence file archives. Broy's story is a tapestry woven with acts of nerve and bluff and bravery. From within the centre of the British security machine, he leaked information to Michael Collins, enabling the IRA to stay ahead of its enemies in intelligence matters. As an active spy, he crisscrossed the city of Dublin with crucial information. On one of these early manoeuvres, 
He needed to alert Eamon de Valera as a matter of urgency that a warrant had been issued for his arrest. Eamon de Valera was the only surviving leader of the 1916 Rising and a significant voice in the newly emerging independence movement. It was the 14th of August 1917, just one year and four months after the failed Easter 1916 Rising. The centre of Dublin city was still in ruins. Turmoil and distrust hung in the air. As fear stalked the streets, an increasing admiration for the rebels and idealists who launched such a disruptive and dangerous insurrection against the British began to develop. The British, taken completely by surprise, had acted, perhaps predictably, and had executed the leaders with a ruthlessness born from two years of brutal trench warfare in Flanders fields. On that August night, Broy was on high alert. He needed to ensure that de Valere's arrest would be thwarted. Broy later recalled in his witness statement to the Bureau of Military History that... On a date which I indirectly place as 14th of August 1917, a warrant arrived at the detective office, 1 Great Brunswick Street, at about 6pm. Detective Sergeant Fagan and I were the only officers present, Fagan in one office and I in another. So we were ordered to arrest Mr. De Valera, who is stated to be residing at 34 Munster Street, Fibsborough. All this time, I was trying to think of some means of warning De Valera of the intended arrest, but could do nothing while Fagan was with me. An Irish volunteer named Padder Healy lived at 86 Fibsborough Road. Fagan and I moved down towards Mountjoy Police Station, but Fagan decided to go into the police station in order to ring up Superintendent Bryan at the detective office to say that we had not seen that man. I decided to sprint to Healy's and to try get back before Fagan emerged from the station. I told him who and what I was and that De Valera was about to be arrested. I asked him to warn De Valera in case the latter wished to evade arrest. I have been to Mountjoy Garda Station, which is housed in the same address as Mountjoy Police Station, 1917. Number 86 Fibsborough Road is now the corner of one of the ugliest buildings in Dublin, the Fibsborough Shopping Centre at the corner of Connock Street. It takes about 10 minutes to walk from the police station to number 86. How long did it take Ned Broy to run that distance? Was his heart pounding in his chest with each striding step? I wonder what Dublin was like on that August evening when Ned Broy made this treacherous journey across north-central Dublin to deliver the warning about de Valera's imminent arrest. Here's Dermot Ferreter again. One of the interesting things about the 1911 census is that it illuminates that sense of a city of of great contrast because there are always those who are comfortable Mm. and doing very well and an elite, but they're living cheek by jowl with people who are packed into tenement houses and the infant mortality rates and maternal mortality rates were very high and they were very high by international standards. So there are those social problems. There are also a variety of different political questions that are of that time in the early 20th century. Dublin Corporation obviously um, was dealing with a lot of the 
social, economic and political problems associated with Dublin. And there is a dominance of nationalism. There's a strong belief that a home rule Ireland is coming soon. And that is the dominant political affiliation. Ned Broy was born in Ballinour, near Rathangan, County Kildare, on the border of County Offaly, on the 26th of November, 1887. His father Patrick and mother Mary were farmers who worked a small holding. He was the eldest of four children. Christened Edward, he was known by the monocler Ned all his life and used the Irish version of his name, Eamon, in later life. The Ireland of his youth was stable, and was for many a period of relative prosperity as more and more tenant farmers began to purchase their farms from landlords. Tenant farmers were offered long-term mortgages at low interest rates and landlords were offered attractive inducements to sell. A series of land purchase acts enacted by the British government and later Irish Free State governments saw land ownership change from 3% to 94% of farmers owning their own land by 1929. These land acts had essentially solved the Irish land question and had brought peace and prosperity to middle and higher echelons of Irish farmers. Irish nationalists were content to hope for home rule, which would see limited independence in a parliament based in Dublin, with Ireland remaining under the sovereignty of the British Crown. However, lying dormant in the background were the Fenians, who sought nothing less than the complete withdrawal of the British from Ireland and the establishment of a fully independent republic. The Land Purchase Acts were put in place precisely to negate this desire for complete separation. And on the surface, at least, this strategy was successful. There were some who had a visceral dislike for the imperial status quo, Ned Broy, in his memoir, tells us, We, of the rising generation, had a hatred of the very name of England, her shires, towns and rivers, and that hatred was intense before we had ever read a line of Irish history. Indeed, the most vivid page is only a pale reflection of the profound feelings of the very soil. Professor Michael Laffin who was my history professor long ago in UCD when I embarked on my history career, paints a picture of what Ireland was like in the years before the 1916 Rising. When Ned Broy joined uh, the police force, Dublin was a divided city and would become more so very quickly uh, with the great lockout of 1913-14, one of the largest confrontations between capital and labor in pre-First World War Europe. So it was a disturbed city, and it was also a city that was preparing to become the home, the center of an Irish parliament. When home rule was on the agenda after 1910, when a home rule bill was introduced in parliament in 1912, Almost everyone expected that there would be a Home Rule Parliament in Dublin within a few years. And this was, if you like, the background to Roy's uh, decision to join the Dublin police. Uh, And uh, he could have reasonably assumed that there would be a Dublin Parliament rather than a London Parliament Mm. uh, supervising uh, his activities eventually. Some powers would be delayed, but he could look forward to being responsible to uh, Irish rather than British politicians. 
This was the Ireland in which Ned Broy found himself. And in 1911, he joined the Royal Irish Constabulary, but left after a very short period when a place became available in the Dublin Metropolitan Police, which was his preferred choice. The DMP were a much more attractive option. The RIC was a military force that policed the entire country outside of Dublin. RIC officers were routinely armed, including with carbines, and billeted in barracks, and the force had a militaristic structure. The RIC were associated with the evictions during the land wars of the 1870s and the 1880s. It was to the RIC that the notorious Black and Tans were aligned in 1920 as an auxiliary police force. The Dublin Metropolitan Police, on the other hand, were unarmed except for a baton. And like our Gardaí of today, were a community force that policed with the goodwill rather than the coercion of the community. It was planned that the DMP were to come under the authority of the new Irish Home Rule government, whilst the RIC were to remain under imperial control from London. The DMP also had very strong sporting and athletic traditions that appealed to the young athlete from Ballinor. Ned Broy goes on to tell us... From my early teenage years, I had a keen interest in athletics, particularly in track and sprinting. At that time, the DMP were famous for their great athletes and tug-of-war teams, which pulled over the best teams in England and Scotland. Amongst the athletes was Inspector Dennis Carey, who held scores of Irish and international championships. Inspector Carey was in charge of training and made a most dashing figure in uniform, as one might expect from such a world-famous athlete. Broy also speaks of other aspects of his life in the police training at the depot, which hint at his future actions as a DMP member in the time of national struggle. In the depot, we all fearlessly and openly discussed the national question. The majority of us expressed strong national views, especially in relation to home rule. During this time, home rule and the Ulster question furnished the main topic of conversation. The great majority of the younger DMP men but not those in senior ranks were in favour of Home Rule. Dermot Ferriter explains further. Ned Broy was a nationalist. Ned Broy was someone who I think joined the DMP as much for its athletic facilities and perhaps because he felt that it would be a better fit for him than the Royal Irish Constabulary. Um, and he, of course, given his background in Kildare, given the family stories that would have been told about 1798. He was steeped in that sense of an Irish nationalist past, perhaps an Irish Republican past. That didn't mean that he was a Republican agitator or anything like it, but there would have been that strong nationalist sentiment deep within the family, and he would have absorbed that. And you can be quiet about that when you're about to forge your own career. It's not that you have to be shouting it from the rooftops or waving flags about it. For many, it was something that they carried deep within them. And he would have expected, like many like-minded people, that home rule was imminent and he would have been a supporter of that. Having completed his training, Broy was appointed as a uniformed constable to the E Division based in Ringsend Police Station which covered the area between the Grand Canal and the Dodder, which suited him, 
as there were so many sporting grounds in the area and he competed and was successful in several sprints and high jump competitions. The Dublin metropolitan area was divided into six divisions, A to F, and extended from Clontarf to Killiney along the seacoast and inland to include Drumcondra, Fibsborough, Crumlin, Turnure and Rathmines. The A to F were uniformed divisions and were supported by a detective division logically named the G Division. The G Division was divided into three sections, political, routine and carriage supervision, all based on the organisation of the London Metropolitan Police. The G Division was run from two offices, one at 1 Great Brunswick Street, now Pierce Street, Garda Station, and the other at Dublin Castle. The political section existed for the countering and supervision of all national movements directed against the English occupation. The total strength of the G Division was about 40 and most were married and lived out in the city. Those unmarried residing in the barracks of 1 Great Brunswick Street. All metropolitan police stations, uniformed and detective, were lined up by the old ABC Private Telegraph. It was possible to send a message simultaneously to all stations by the telegraph system and copies of all messages were written up on special forms for permanent record. If a man were shot or a house burgled in, say, Dawkey, within a couple of minutes of the police receiving the report, it would be received by private telegraph by the police in Crumlin and Clontarf, as well as by the detective office. The G Division was certainly the nerve centre of all areas of policing in Dublin at this critical time in Irish history. It had an overview of all criminal activity, the carriage of Dubliners around the city, of those engaged in legitimate business or otherwise, but most critically, it had detailed information on those who were suspected of actively subverting the presence of the British Crown in Ireland. Ned Roy was content to patrol his beat in his Dublin Metropolitan uniform between the Grand Canal and the Dodder for three years, dealing with the licensing laws, domestic violence, minor breaches of the peace, exuberant and thoughtless youth and errant dogs. In late 1914, however, he applied to take the written and oral examination covering English composition and arithmetic and a knowledge of Dublin streets to become a detective constable in the G Division. Ned Broy was making his first steps on the journey to become one of the most important spies in Irish history. Broy, a young Irish nationalist, had been a witness to the failed 1916 Easter Rising. Now, appalled at the vicious and apparently retaliatory executions carried out by the British, he had decisions to make. His recent promotion sees him in the infamous G Division of the Dublin Metropolitan Police. The armed detective branch, which was an anti-subversive force, engaged in foiling all nationalist activities. This puts him in a pivotal role and was to provide him with an enormous conflict. Was he to support the status quo, keep his head down and ignore the seismic changes that seemed to be in the air? Or would he become a spy for the forces that were struggling to achieve Irish independence? He chose the latter. 
and this season becoming a close friend and advisor to Michael Collins, the most notorious and most wanted man in the British Empire. Ireland was on a precipice between yearned for freedom or continued subservience. Roy now had the opportunity to be the missing cog who could turn the dial to freedom. In our next episode, we walk with Broy as he lives his life on a knife edge. Roy was one of those who took the view, we live now in a different world. The volunteers want you to come to my house tonight. The time had come for direct contact with me. Broy should meet Michael Collins directly. This podcast is researched, written and presented by me, Brendan McCauley. The podcast is produced and edited by Orn O'Halloran, sound design from Lachlan Hart. The podcast is executive produced by Owen Brennan for Go Loud. Darren Cleary is our commissioning editor. This podcast is brought to you by Go Loud. Don't forget to like, rate and subscribe to the podcast. 